I know in Kentucky where I'm from that there was a, a guy I knew who had found this big timber rattlesnake den and he told the U.S. Forest Service because he wanted, he was like, oh, you guys should know about this so you can protect it. And instead they dynamited it. Welcome to From the Ground Up, where we talk to reptile keepers and breeders about all things cold-blooded. Sit back and have a beer with us. Well, some of you are driving. If you're driving, keep your hands tended to and enjoy the show. Welcome to From the Ground Up podcast. Thank you all for being here. First thing we want to talk about is we have our fundraiser shirts up. So I would love it if you would check out portcitypythons.com and we can raise some money for the OCIC. If you want to learn more about the OCIC and basically uh, indigo snake conservation, please check out our podcast with the director, Michelle Hoffman. We did it a few weeks ago. So if you want to check out that and please support us in supporting them. And I would really, really, really appreciate it. And the shirts just look cool. I don't know. Also, <laughs> and we, just get you get yourself a shirt. We've said this before, but if you got a shirt, please send us pictures. I think we've only gotten like one picture back. We just like want to know what they look like in real life. <laughs> well, Austin last week's guest had it on. Yes, so. true. Triple points that. for Austin. <laughs> Other than that, what else do we have? Um. Well. Nothing. I mean, it doesn't affect them. But for us, we have officially completed all of our corn uh, locks for this season, which is really, really exciting. Um, our biggest one is our het palmettos locked. And so we are super excited to sell palmettos this fall. Um, zero of our Cali Kings have gone, which is the flip side. That's very disappointing. It's to the point where we have to resex all of them basically. Cause we're like, are we even putting the right things it's together? together. That's how unsuccessful we are and how little interest anyone's taking in each other. So that's pretty much where that is. Uh, Louisiana pine snakes. They made it happen, which is exciting. Um, our Brooks have made it happen multiple, multiple times. Uh, so lots of busyness, but we still got to do some more locks and yes. Also, thank you to anyone who we saw at the white plane show this weekend. It was really exciting to be there. It was my first time at the white plane show. It was just nice to see like what he talks about all the time. Rating one out of 10. What? (laughs) What would you rate the show? It depends on its own or compared to others. (laughs) Well, obviously you got to take into account the others on its own. It's a different comparison, but compared to, some other show. shows we've been right. to, it's a pretty good show. I mean, I don't know. I thought it was good. <laughs> um, and also, it's like, what are you judging it on? Are you judging it on cleanliness yeah. and all that? Cleanliness, cleanliness. It was great. The $15 parking lot, because I'm frugal. <laughs> That's what you're like, concerned about is yes, the parking. <laughs> in addition to other things that I won't get into. But I think that is <laughs> it for us. Yes. So today we have on Melissa and Jeff from Advocates for Snake Preservation. So Melissa, Jeff, if you guys could introduce yourself and tell us a bit of what ASP does. Sure, um, do you want me to go first? So sure. I'm Melissa and we we co-founded Advocates for Snake Preservation, our ASP, very clever acronym. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, we both uh, worked in conservation in the field for, I don't know, like 12 years, looking at the effects of various human treatments on reptiles and amphibians with a particular focus on snakes on most of our projects. 
And, you know, we would be out there like doing science stuff and tracking animals with radio telemetry. So lots of cool, obvious equipment. And because we were looking at like the effects of urban development or fire and national parks, we'd often run into members of the public and they would always come up and be like, oh, they're so interested. And like, what are you guys doing with that cool stuff? And then we tell them and they'd be like, snakes. And at best kind of mm, uninterested. And at worst, they're like, but why would we want to know? I mean, wouldn't it be better if that killed all the snakes? So we started to realize that there was this, um, this disconnect and this issue that wasn't really being addressed on a large scale of, you know, their conservation scientists are collecting all these data on how we can help snakes. But if the public doesn't care, they're going to shut those projects down, especially when it's a potentially dangerous animal like a rattlesnake or some other venomous snake. Like they don't they don't want to help them. So so we decided to form this organization to address that issue and basically like a positive PR firm for snakes. Like we're trying to change the way people feel about snakes, people talk about snakes and therefore like how they treat snakes. Um, so, yeah. Well, yeah, so that's the <laughs> story. I, I'm Jeff, I'm just here to, you know, <laughs> listen like you guys No, I'm, uh, so, so we did meet um, working on some conservation projects with reptiles. And, and like Melissa says, it's, uh, you know, it, it's easy for a scientist to, to think you're doing good work when you're, when you're out there, you're getting funding, you're publishing papers. But when the real, you know, what really makes a difference is when snakes are made, you know, have to have an easier time in the wild because, um, that's what we really want. And, and so, so there's a, there is a disconnect between, you know, you write your reports, you write your paper, but then um, that has to be carried forward. You know, there's a little bit of politics involved and uh, there can be an uproar when the general public is like, you want to do what with tax money? You know, you want to, you want to set aside this land or, or, you know, whatever it is you want to study this animal. So, so, so like Melissa said, we, we, we want to show um, both of us are like just enthralled with, with watching snakes and, and it's just the coolest thing to be out there to um, see what they do, you know, what they're all about um, in the field. We're, we're both, you know, we both fell in love with snakes uh, early on and reptiles in general. And, uh, and so, but then we had the opportunity to kind of um, to track them around and figure out what they, what they do a little bit in the wild, uh, where to find them when they're active, you know, and, and we both were just sort of like, Oh my God, this is, the most interesting thing we could do, you know, when our friends, you know, for six months of the year, when our friends were like, Hey, let's go to the bar or, or let's go to the, we're having a party. We'd be like, sorry, it's the field season. We'd be out every night following snakes around because that was our life, you know? So, so for us, it's the most fascinating thing to be out there watching these animals. And so, um, like Melissa said, when you come across people that are like, Oh God, why would you, you know, a snake is, um, you're trying to figure out like how to how to how to bridge that and you know make it ex not even it doesn't have to be exciting it's not like everybody has to be in love with them but at least like not against them yeah but, yeah i think it's it seems so innate it seems like a gut reaction for a lot of people so it's obviously very very hard it's a very vague question to be like oh well how do we 
portray reptiles in a positive light when it seems like a very complicated issue. So, I mean, in your opinion, I mean, how are you doing that? How are you trying to basically portray them in positive light? Yeah, that, it is a good question. And I think, you know, a lot of the things that, that drew us all to snakes and especially those who work with um, some of the venomous species like rattlesnakes. So snakes in general, you know, it's like, ah, oh, they're, they're these, these fierce, like amazing and effective predators. And most of us that they keep snakes or enjoy watching snakes, like that's really exciting for us. I mean, I remember as a kid, you know, watching it on TV. And then when I got my first snake, like, you know, that whole predation thing was really exciting for me. And with venomous species and rattlesnakes in particular, it's like the rattling is really cool. And why do they do that? And venom is really neat. And in the way that they're most often portrayed on TV, it's like, who's the most dangerous? Who's mm-hmm. the, like, what can they kill? How fast can they like drop an elephant? Um, and to those of us who like snakes, none of those things are scary. They're just cool. But for people who are scared of snakes, like that, all of those things are turnoffs. <laughs> like they don't, they don't want, I mean, maybe they want to know who's dangerous, but it's mostly just so that they can figure out like who they should kill the fastest or when they should call someone to get rid of it. And so for us, and it was kind of basically like listening to something on national public radio where they were talking about whales and, you know, how we need to save whales, which is such a, I mean, that's kind of a joke now among <laughs> environmentalists, like save the whales, but they didn't talk about whales as predators. They didn't talk about their important place in the ecosystem. What they talked about was whales have families and whales have these social bonds and all of these things that to basically every human, we, we can relate to those things. We have friends you know, we have parents that took care of us. We have families. We have family reunions. Like these, these all invoke positive emotions instead of negative emotions that snakes often evoke, like fear and hate. And and at that same time that I heard that, we were just starting to to learn about and to think about and observe social behaviors and parental care among rattlesnakes. And it's like, well, wait, why don't why don't we talk about snakes that way? Like we don't, I mean, yeah, they're predators and that's really interesting and they are venomous and venom is, is a very cool like evolutionary tool to be able to eat these large things, large and potentially dangerous prey, but also rattlesnakes take care of their kids. And that is so cool. And something that like hardly any of the general public knows about. Um, And when they find out about it, like just to see the the change in people's minds. It's like, now this isn't necessarily like just a cold blooded killing machine is a mom or somebody's friend. Um, and so that's what we've kind of, we focus on in our education and outreach efforts are telling stories about rattlesnake families or social groups of rattlesnakes or just these individual, even just taking a very, like mundane everyday experience of a rattlesnake, but telling it in story form and individualizing the snake and kind of focusing in on stuff that I think to most of us who look at snakes might even think is boring because it's not rattling and flashing and killing and blah, blah, blah. It's just, you know, Jaden like going about his day of hanging out and coiling in one place. And then a squirrel comes along and kicks dirt in his face and, 
it's nothing like super exciting, but that sort of like boring and just the fact that that snake has a name now really seems to connect with people that aren't going to connect in a positive way um, to hearing about how fast that snake could kill that squirrel. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure you guys are in Arizona. So what species are you observing as well as, I mean, there must be a much more, um, much more interaction between rattlesnakes and humans there than say here in Pennsylvania. Um, yeah, I would expect so. There's, uh, you know, we are, we started in Arizona and we, we actually, we moved to New Mexico recently. Um, not far. It's, it's <laughs> you know, there, there are a lot of rattlesnakes. Um, New Mexico doesn't have quite the sprawl and um, development and, you know, people moving, people with money moving to the outskirts of Phoenix into some big fantastic home uh, out in the desert. And then they're like, oh my God, there's, there are rattlesnakes here. Like, we, this is a problem. We have to do something about it. And it's like, dude, you moved into their habitat. Um, so, so yeah, that, that is a problem. Um, and, and the conflict is there. And there are a lot of people who didn't grow up there that don't understand the thing. And so, and so what the, really the issue is in a lot of cases, I mean, for them, it's a very, it's a very real interaction where they have a snake in their on their patio or it gets in their house or something. And, and, you know, they don't know what to do, but um, the real issue, or the, you know, one of the, the germinal sort of issues here is that there is um, the popular culture notion of what a snake is, you know, going to the Bible and, all, you know, just stories of what snakes are for most people is that they are out to get you. And, and so what Melissa's talking about with personalizing these animals, stories about what they actually do, you know, that, that changes the conversation a little bit. It adds into this, you know, people, it's almost like snakes are a separate thing. They're almost, people think of them as like not even really animals. along with other animals. It's like, they are these nefarious demonic, you know, like the devil sent these things here or they are an embodiment of the devil. And, and so you know, that's, that's kind of where they're coming from. And they have a very limited understanding of what uh, they actually are and what they do and, and that they actually don't want to tangle with you. You know, for the most part, there's not a snake out there that's going to be like, hey, human, I'm going to go get up in their business and try to do them harm. And so we do, you know, we take our observations and that's, you know, it's really our love is to be out there and look, watching behavior and looking at snakes out in, in the field and and so we try to bring those stories into a, a consumable form to, to the people that, so our audience isn't um, probably the people who are listening to this podcast. Our audience is your aunt. That's like, you're crazy. You know, I, I bleep myself there. But, uh, <laughs> oh, it's okay. This is not a PG-13. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> can, Let's do this. You have free reign of everything. <laughs> so, so the, yeah, there, you know, we're trying to address this gap between the general public and the and, and the the uh, the idea of what snakes are to most people, and bring them some real information through videos and stories, and um, and we're trying to you know humanize the the snake a little bit by just um, showing that it's just an animal like anything else. It's trying to do its thing. You know, people love tigers. Tigers are pretty vicious predators. Like that. That's really shouldn't be a disqualifying factor. Um, yeah, like tigers, 
actually eat people. Like they eat people. Like it's a pretty regular part of their diet. There's probably a tiger out advocate out there who's like, oh my God, stop. But you know, like that's <laughs> not like any statistically. Yeah, I mean, there's like hardly any snakes that have the ability to do that. Right. And that seems, you know, probably everyone listening to this, you know, unless they're regularly having these conversations with their friends, you're like, that's crazy that people think. But just trying to convince people that snakes have no reason to attack us or or your dog, you know, but they're like, but and I'm like, but why? Why do you think they would do that? Like they they have nothing to gain in this situation from going after you. Um, or your dog. Yes, even if it's a chihuahua, even if it's like a tiny toy, whatever you call the little kitten, you know, whatever. It's like they can't eat. They can't eat these things. They can't eat us. They only have the opportunity to possibly get hurt and killed. Why would they want to do that? But that's not that's not what you see. You know, most of us learn about animals from books. Well, not anymore. TV, movie. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, even going back to like the Bible, like what I grew up with, I mean, that's, that's where you, that's where you learn about these things. And, and snakes, you know, like 99.9% of the time are portrayed in all of these forms of media as, you know, you only see them as predators. And again, like, yes, they do do that. And it's really interesting and cool and important, but that they spend so little of their time doing that, which is obvious to anyone that's worked with them in the wild, or if you've kept them, it's like, they don't, I mean, even as far as like animals go across the board, they don't eat that much or that often. Um, but most people don't know that because that's all you see. Every Western, there's always a rattlesnake and it's always coming after someone. And it makes no sense if you know anything about snakes, but most people don't know anything about snakes except what they saw in that movie. Um, and that's, yeah, it, it seems like maybe a silly barrier, but it is a big, important barrier to their conservation because you can't address any of these other issues if people just don't care and they want them all to be dead anyway because they're useless and, and scary. <laughs> yeah, it's almost sad that we need to like grasp for all these different things like the whole like, you know, venom going towards medical research and also, mm -hmm. the fact that no snake is going to chase you. Also, the fact that well, they're obviously playing a role in their ecosystem. In it's, your ecosystem. it's hard with snakes. It's like it's not more than just like advocate. You're having to undo so much. Yeah, you're you know, not you're starting having, at zero. You're right, starting at like a negative. negative. You're having to mm -hmm. undo years of whether it's religion or years of watching things on TV or years of everyone in your neighborhood saying you know the same. Like you're, you're having to undo and rewire so yeah. much. And, it, and so or you just date a snake breeder and that'll change your, that'll change your <laughs> on snakes real quick. <laughs> There's not enough of them to go around. you know. <laughs> uh, so and you're right. It, you know, and emotional responses, you know, snakes sort of target that emotional nerve in people. And so the rational side is not very effective at combating these emotional sort of like knee jerk, like, uh, oh, those are gross. They're slimy. You know, like you can say like, no, it's not slimy. And they'll be like, it looks slimy. It's slimy. So, so that's part of our, uh, our MO as well is to use emotional appeals. So, so we have, like Melissa said, um, you know, stories about mothers and families and, and these interactions we, we, sh we don't really show a lot of like feeding events, although like we think they're cool when we see it in the field, it's like such a lucky thing, but 
but we try to kind of downplay that a little bit. Um, and, and when, and we also don't rely a lot on, um, the facts of like, yeah, the, the medical benefits of venom, the uh, ecological benefits to agriculture. Uh, and so, so a lot of these things that, that are just kind of cold, hard facts, we don't, we, we don't use those tools that much because, because when you're combating an emotional response or people are just dug in and it's like, well, I don't care. I think they're gross. And it, and once you sort of show the side of the, if you can get to people to at least look at these animals, just sort of going about their business and doing their thing and, and just seeing that like, Oh, it's actually you know, um, just trying to survive and do its thing. It's like when they can relate a little bit to them, I think that breaks down a little bit of that scare factor that, that, you know, that entrenched fear more than this generic sort of like, oh, they eat rats. They eat, you know, a million pounds of rats a year. So what does that even mean? I mean, it is, those are important numbers and those are important things, important things to know. But, um, but for us, it's like this, 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 the hatred is so powerful that like our, you know, we, we try to hit them with the, you know, the love. Yeah, definitely. And so what exactly does a, rattlesnake den in new mexico look like uh show oh, us one yeah we'll, <laughs> we'll tell you yeah so we, we're still returning to our arizona dens <laughs> to look at that um and definitely like we have the most information about ones that we've been going to longer in arizona but um yeah i don't know i mean we can talk about we just recently visited um for our kind of annual thing um these den sites that are shared by Arizona black rattlesnakes and um, Crotalus cerberus and striped whip snakes. Uh, are they Colubra or Mastocophus? Mastocophus. Mastocophus teneatus. Who can keep up? Um, yeah, I don't, I like, do you want to talk about what does that typically look um, like? Well, so I would take a step further back and say that, you know, when we started, um, we both moved to Arizona, you know, cause it was like a Mecca for reptiles and, and, uh, when we first started doing field work, it was all about the monsoon season, the summertime, rainy season. Everything is going nuts. There's there's snakes everywhere. They're all moving around. And it's very interesting. And you can see a lot of animals that way. And it wasn't until, um, you know, we met some people and they were like, oh, actually the winter, you can see a lot of stuff in the winter time when they're at their dens. And so people started bringing us to dens and, uh, and, you know, with, with rules, with stipulations that, you know, we don't do what we were trained to do, which is like, you grab, you measure, you mark, you know, this is science. Yeah. Must be and, captured. And Everybody so, must be captured. So we were, you know, we were like, we had to go with a, a bag on our head and like tie hands tied, you know, they were, that's the only way they would take us there. You know, but, but we were, we were sort of like shown the light by some, some folks who had been doing it a long time. And, and that's where we really started to see that um, these animals, there's a lot to the interactions that they do. Um, you know, you, you can see reproductive behavior in the summertime, but um, it's, that's, that's pretty um, a well-defined sort of interaction and an interchange. So, so at, the, at the dens themselves, there's, there's other things that go on. You know, they, they, they come together. Some of them want to be together. Some of them don't like each other. And so there are these layers and these, um, you know, the, these, plots that are playing out and you you kind of have to tune in and really what you can't do is get in there and, and muck around um 
And, and even, and so, so when we started visiting, it was with binoculars, it was with cameras. We're just trying to, you know, keep our distance. And so we'd see piles of snakes and it was gorgeous and it was amazing, but we didn't see a lot of behavior. Um, and so, and so Melissa said it was a lot of, some with Arizona black rattlesnakes, but also diamondbacks, Western diamondbacks will den communally as well as individually, but they do have communal dens. And so, and, and they're watchable in the spring and fall. They're, they're, they're doing some courtship behavior and they're, um, a lot of their dens is, is more based on um, access to females and reproductive activity, uh, which is very different from the black rattlesnakes. But, but anyway, we, we started to get a grip on, on these aggregations of snakes and, and figure out like ways, ways to study them. And, and you know, what can we do here? These are, this, is, this blows our mind every time we go and we just wanna see what it's all about. Um, you know, they were, they were, you know, sort of long time field herpers that that you know they had pretty fantastic stories about who was who, who who was whose mom, and who was doing what, and and we wanted to kind of you know do a little bit more of a rigorous study and and get at like what's going on here, you know what do these interactions mean, and and you know we're we're still you know ten years in we're still feel like it's kind of in its infancy, but um, and it and it is, but we do know more like. We, we learned from others who had been trying to do this while minimizing disturbance. So how do you identify an animal without catching it and putting a microchip in it or cutting off various pieces of their scales and tails and um, not tails, uh, rattles or painting their rattles. And, you know, so we learned to identify them by using their patterns, which some other snake people had done. And that's also how researchers that study whales and other cetaceans, um, you know, will identify them because catching and microchipping a whale, I guess, isn't feasible. Um, <laughs> yeah, you just, you know, and then you just scan it. It's real easy. Um, yeah, I mean, it seems so obvious, but that was such a, I mean, like Jeff said, like, that's what you, you see a snake, you grab it, you catch it, and, but they kind of stop behaving or what you see once you are close enough to catch it that, those are defensive behaviors because like we explain to members of the public all the time, like they view us as a threat. So that's, that is what you see when they see you most of the time. Um, so that was an important part. And um, the other reason it was important to find a way to tell who's who without having to catch them is that we shifted from using, um, you know, even binoculars and kind of sitting back to using um, cameras of various sorts. So we needed a way for the cameras to be able to identify or, you know, for us to be able to see on the stuff we were getting later with the cameras and that, yeah, we thought before that we were seeing like natural behavior, but when you take people completely out of that situation and you just have the machine, even there, you get to see things that we didn't get to see before. Um, you know, like squirrels coming up and threatening rattlesnakes, mother and babies, and also adults outside of their dens, like, that would never happen while we're sitting there, even if we're pretty far away from a binocular, like a squirrel's not going to come up and get in the middle of us and rattlesnakes. I mean, you'd have to be brazen squirrel, man. They are there. Well, so we've found, and, and we had heard bits and pieces and I've read in the literature that they found in squirrel guts or squirrel poop or whatever evidence of them eating snakes. But we found some baby rattlesnakes that had bite marks that looked like they were from squirrels. So they're not just 
threatening them, but if they get a chance, they're probably killing those baby rattlesnakes too. Wow. I mean, it's a good strategy. Like the adults probably can take out young squirrels. Um, so why not take them out while you're still bigger than them? If a mother is foolish enough to unlucky enough to leave them unprotected, I guess I, most of the time what we'd seen with our cameras was a squirrel approaching a nest and a mother and babies or a babysitter and babies and, and the snakes all go into shelter and nothing happens. And so I'm guessing we were guessing that <clears throat> when we found the bodies that that must've been some unattended babies or maybe babies that had just left the nest and weren't protected anymore. Cause yeah, they don't, the squirrels in our area don't, don't go like right up within striking distance generally of like adult rattlesnakes. Cause especially when they're all a, a group of them, like you're one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you think that they, I mean, they're impervious to a certain degree to their venom or how would they avoid being bit? Um, they could be. So in other areas where these relationships between rock squirrels and rattlesnakes have been better studied, they found that the adult rock squirrels are at least um, immune enough to rattlesnake venom where it doesn't kill them. Like it'll make them sick. They're kind of like eh, for a couple days, but they recover. Um, but the juvenile and baby squirrels are not. Um, and then, so the adult squirrels will go after like juvenile snakes cause they can take them. If there's a juvenile snake, like crawling around amongst their communal squirrel nest, um, squirrel colonies, but they won't go after the adult snakes, but they'll get close enough to let the adult snakes know that like, Hey, this is not a cool place for you to be. They have these like specific tail flagging behaviors that say, there's a rattlesnake here versus like there's a bull snake or there's a gopher snake or some sort of less dangerous snake. Um, so yeah. humans can't even tell those right. apart. That's amazing. Whoa. I know it's, it's really interesting. And that um, Dr. Rulon Clark at San Diego state university, like his lab has been doing some work. So there's a, there's a lot of history of people looking at the squirrel side of things. Um, and the snake side of things has only recently been looked at. Um, so it's like, you know, can the snake like read those, actually read those signals and respond to them? And they're starting to, to dig at that a little bit, which is really cool. But yeah, they, I mean, I guess they, I mean, it's sort of the way you would translate any language you can't understand. They've been looking at those squirrels and yeah, they have very different the way that they wag their tails. It's very different when it's a rattlesnake versus a different kind of snake versus you know, what else? Like, Hey, I found food or I don't know what else squirrels talk about. Cause it's not me. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's a very interesting relationship, but I think, I think our films were the first one to show that like the squirrels were actually coming up to rattlesnake dens and their nest sites versus just, um, doing the little squirrel dances when snakes came into their territory, but they actually seem to be sneaking or, um, <laughs> seeking the snakes out at our sites um, instead of the other way around. Cause again, like they were just studying squirrels, so they weren't monitoring rattlesnake dens. So yeah, it's a, uh, it is very interesting and weird. <laughs> wow. That's something I never would have guessed to learn yeah. about squirrels. Um, and totally cool to get like a room full of, you know, not snake people show them a video of like a rattlesnake nest and the mommy and babies and then a squirrel comes in and I tell them the story about how we found bodies once and they're totally rooting against the cute fur for the snakes. 
It's funny. We weirdly squirrels have come up like a good amount in the last couple of podcasts. <laughs> I don't know why, thing. but I am like seem to be the only person who is not a fan of squirrels. They're really jerks. We've decided that college squirrels are different than others. College squirrels are very, very vicious and bold. <laughs> and I think that's what ruined it because during my time in college, they will come up right to you and will try to take your piece of pizza out of your hand. Like I've <laughs> and um, so, yes. But, you don't think that that's a, the same animal that's going to be flagging down rattlesnakes? I don't, I don't think that's the same uh, it's not <laughs> the same squirrel. <laughs> no. I mean, it's the same level of ballsiness, right? Like, True. we're at least as scary as a rattlesnake. <laughs> Very ballsy. Yeah, I, I mean, I would rather tangle with a rattlesnake than another human any day. It's true. <laughs> I mean, so, squirrels are clearly very curious, so they must. Why exactly? I mean, before besides just eating, I mean, would they risk all that just to try to get a meal of a baby rattlesnake? I feel like there's so many easier meals for them. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that it's more. Um, not, you know, there is the social signaling among squirrels when they have sort of colonies of, of kin. Um, what I think we're seeing mostly at the dens is um, they come up, you know, squirrels are pretty quick. They're high elevation sites. So the snakes aren't always like all that warm when they're at the dens. They're not really hunting. They're just kind of hanging out and sort of getting in the, in the seasonal rhythm and metabolically sort of gearing back up, but they're not like, they're not that warm. They're not that feisty. And I think when the squirrels come up, they're just saying like, we're on to you. We know you're here. You're not going to get us. Like you just might as well get the hell out of here, you know, just move along. And, and I think that's kind of what, what it is, is like, you know, for a, for a rattlesnake to be able to get a squirrel, he's got to catch him by surprise. And when the element of surprise is gone, um, the rattlesnake doesn't have a good chance. So, but I think there is a little bit of that. And especially in the studies in, in California and stuff, yeah. it's like, it's like, dude, we all know you're here, man. No, you're not fooling anybody. Just, <laughs> <Peace>. <laughs> So, and I think that we see some of that at the dens, but, but the snakes at the dens, they're not hunting. They're just like, oh, this fucking jerk is here again. Like, just go away. <laughs> it's not like a big deal. They don't do, they don't really change. The big males won't really change their behaviors. They'll just be like, well, I'm a squirrel. I'll, you know, I'll see you in a couple months, you know? Um, but so it is interesting. It's, there's this really, really crazy interaction there. And, and uh, there's a lot to it. Um, and at the current place where we're studying them, we actually don't mm, see Yeah, we squirrels. haven't seen any rock squirrels there on the videos. Uh, or, like, as we've been hiking around and stuff, there's just not. Yeah. It's just snakes. Yeah. <laughs> so how far out from civilization are you going for these dens? Oh, man. So the dens where we did... Um, the work for my master's thesis that was on social behavior in Arizona black rattlesnakes where we quantified like, you know, they are actually choosing who they hang out with and stuff. Those were like scary close to people. Um, like there'll be times there's a pretty well used um, mountain bike trail in a dirt road that was frequented by ATVs um, and like four wheel drive vehicles too you know, where we'd occasionally have to like duck somebody's coming kind of close. <laughs> mm. um, the place where we are now, it, it, it's still like, there's a, there's a dirt road, not that far, but it's not, um, it's much further from a, a city like ours. And there's lots of 
um, more places that are more attractive to humans in the Southwest because they're wetter and cooler. So we don't have to worry about that as much. Um, but yeah, I mean, it depends. I, I mean, I think that even in our part of the world, this is certainly more true where, where you guys are in the Northeast, that a lot of the, the big dens where there were probably all kinds of cool stuff take place are just gone because that, you know, it's a lot easier to see that. And that's it. That's a real easy way to check out a lot of snakes if you want to. And, you know, I think that a lot of, you know, again, getting back to the fear and misunderstanding of snakes, that a lot of people just see that as a, you know, a great public service that they're doing to take out a den of snakes. And I know in Kentucky where I'm from that there was a, a guy I knew who had found this big timber rattlesnake den and he told the U.S. Forest Service because he wanted, you know, was like, oh, you guys should know about this so you can protect it. And instead they dynamited it. And this, like, this isn't like, like, oh, the 20s. This was the 80s. (laughs) And not a threat. Yeah, and not a threat. It's just out in the National Forest. You know, he just, yeah. But they're like, well, you know, they they'll get people eventually. I mean, there aren't even any cities in that part of the state like it was. But, yeah, I mean, that's just the general snake attitude. So I think that for that reason, they tend to be not real close to cities um, because people have probably found them and disturbed them in one way or another. I mean, we do have another den that we've gone to and it and it's kind of interesting. It's a Western Diamondback den and it's pretty pretty close to some high flutin neighborhoods outside of Tucson, um, million dollar homes and such, and is a pretty heavily used area for mountain bikes and also for people like javelina and dove hunting. And that, and that den just in the relatively short time that we've known about it, 15 years has had periods where there's 20 diamondback snakes there, diamondback rattlesnakes there. Um, and then somebody finds it and kills everyone that they see. And there are no snakes that use that site for a couple years. And then it pops back up again. And it sort of has those up and down fluctuations. Um, but mostly the places we know about are further away. And, and honestly, like at this point, if I did find a den, even if it was really cool, that was that close to people and well used, like I, I don't want to frequent it because it just makes me anxious you know, at the one that we went to for my master's, we've kind of stopped. And part of the reason is just every time we go there, I'm like sweating the whole walk. Like, you know, are we going to find everybody dead? Because that's happened to us before at, at the, the other den I was just talking about. So I tend to stay away from those now. <laughs> Man, that's so we take. Yeah, we take pains to sort of, you know, protect the dens as best we can. I mean, it's. It's sort of like it's almost to the point where we're like feel guilty about visiting them ourselves yeah. because it's like, oh, man, like someone's going to follow our footsteps, mm. you know, wonder why we're parked on the side of the road right here. You know, mm. So so we're, we're just we try to be as careful as we can. I mean, there we, we try to do it all our work in service of the snakes. So, you know, when we put out cameras and we leave them out there, we do our best to camouflage them. So you wouldn't you wouldn't notice them from a road. You know, we. That the ravens wouldn't be cued in to what's going like, hey, what's you know, what's going on down here? Is this a den of babies here? Or so so we do our best to 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 cover our tracks um and still be able to have some information to share with people to try to, you know, turn them onto our side. 
but but we're we're very careful. We when we and we don't go out there as much as we we could. Um, we don't we don't bring people that we could impress. You know, it's just it's just like we we're we're out there and we're we're we feel like we're we're sat we're we are exposing a little bit of the safety of these animals for kind of the greater good, and and that's kind of how we justify it to ourselves. But but yeah, we're we're terrified that somebody's going to go out there and and wipe out these snakes because we did see that happen once, and and it was just. I mean, it was, it was heartbreaking. Yeah, it was heartbreaking. It's still, I mean, that was 15 years ago. It's still, yeah, painful. And we talked a little bit about, obviously, the squirrels communicating, but are we seeing some forms of communication between the rattlesnakes themselves? Uh, well, so probably. I mean, the, um, you know, a lot of snakes communication is chemically through what they're smelling and sense they're um, giving off to each other. So those are things that we are obviously not picking up with our cameras. Um, but, and, and a lot of the ways that we can see snakes communicating that have been identified, like I'm thinking about things like um, chin rubbing and cording rattlesnakes. Um, since we've focused on Arizona blacks and we haven't observed any um, courtship behavior at their dens, um, we don't see as much of that, but it has been kind of interesting. We don't see any obvious courtship stuff, but we have, we have seen them a couple times like doing that chin rubbing thing that it almost looks like because it's not followed by any of the other things that are usually associated with courtship, like where the, the male's trying to like match his tail his tail up to the correct place with the female. They'll just like one snake, um, especially if they're like approaching a group of snakes, they'll come up to one and sort of do a quick like chin rub and then join the group or not. It almost seems like they're saying hi or introducing themselves or something. So I think I think we are seeing things and we're certainly starting to see some interesting things with the whip snakes now that we're using cameras that actually have the ability to observe what whip snakes do. Um, but we're not, uh, we're not to the point where we can um, like translate that yet. Cause it's still, it, yeah, it's weird. It's like, and we've been sort of studying the social behavior for almost 10 years, but it still feels like we just started cause it's, it's so foreign to us. I mean, humans are so sight and hearing focused. Um, like right now we're watching each other through video and we're listening to each other. Um, and not that snakes are blind and deaf, but those senses are not as important to them as smelling. And so none of, none of this that's going on right now between the four of us is, and everybody else who's listening, watching, like, is basically important at all to a snake. Um, well, it's, it's subtle by design, right? They're, they're trying to keep their cover from predators yeah. and prey. So, so they, they, you know, they're trying to keep it on the down low as best they can. So. Um, so, so the chin rubbing that the rattlesnakes do during courtship, um, I think that that's more of a generalized interaction than, uh, than what, you know, people that keep and breed might think that, you know, it is sort of this, like, um, you know, if you're at a crowded party and you're walking, you're trying to squeeze behind someone and you put your hand on their shoulder, like, Oh, coming through, you know, you don't want to just sort of barge through and have them be like, what the hell are you doing? You know, it's it's sort of this this polite like I'm just a snake. I'm crawling over your back. It's no big deal. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but there there are other things that go on in sort of a, a tactile behavioral sort of um, 
way where, you know, some snakes will coil on top of other snakes. Some snakes will put their head, rest their head on top of another snake. And, and we don't know really if that's, is that a, a positioning? Is that a social hierarchy that's, that's being worked out? Um, you know, is that just a friendly thing? Is it, you know, just like, Hey, you know, like we're buds. Um, <laughs> we don't really know. And, and actually we've, we've talked about trying to get some of these behaviors that we see, um, into sort of a, an easy to digest and easy to kind of flip through format and have people that have a lot of experience with snakes. Um, they just kind of know snakes and even people that don't know snakes, like to look, look at these behaviors and say like, what do you, you know, what are your, what do you think is going on here? Is this anything, you know? And so if you get a lot of people that are like, that looks like that guy's being a dick, you know, then, okay. So, you know, maybe that seems like a agonistic interaction. Um, but you know, there's so much subtlety to snake behavior that, that it's tough. Uh, but it it is really a fascinating thing. And, and we've gone from using time-lapse footage We've, we've tried to work more as the technology improves and battery life improves. We've tried to go with more like sort of real time, you know, GoPro 30 frame a second kind of thing rather than one frame every 30 seconds. Or 60 seconds. <laughs> yeah. So, so that, and that's a lot of our work initially was time lapse where you see snakes moving around. These snakes are moving slow as molasses usually, but, but in terms of like, you know, response reactions to things that are going on you don't really catch a lot of that so so now that we're getting more actual sort of footage that that is in real time i think we can read a little bit more into what's going on and, and be able to share that stuff and that's kind of what we're working on now is is getting um getting some of this stuff and and it, there was a, for example one time uh last year we we i think we threw up a, a video some clips of how rattlesnakes were dealing with these whip snakes at their den and, and these are not things that we were able to observe, but by leaving cameras there, you know, we saw that these, these whip snakes are kind of spazzy and they're all over the place and they're, and they're cruising around. And, and there is some evidence that they, they may eat young rattlesnakes and other types of whip snakes will. But, but, um, but what, what we're seeing is these whip snakes are, you know, they're, they don't really seem to notice the rattlesnakes too much, but when the rattlesnakes are like, I have to cross over this whip snake that's sitting there, they kind of like, they sort of just like brace themselves against them. And they're like, you're not going to get my neck, you know, like I'm going to go by you, but I'm just going to sort of like, make sure I have a good little coil here. I'm just going to try to push you out of the way as I go by. And, and so just really interesting stuff like that. And, and so you can, you can read into these interactions a little bit. The rattlesnakes don't do that to each other. They, you know, they might yeah. give a little gentle, like, Hey, I'm coming through. But they're not just like, I don't trust you. And you're just kind of a spazzy, like douchey kind of a steak. I'm going to do my best to kind of protect myself. And so we're, we're trying to find, you know, see more examples of this kind of thing that, that are a little bit easier to read into their behavior and their interactions a little bit. Is there anything like more in depth than just them seeking shelter? Is there any reason why they would, you know, den together or be found in a similar place? Um. I imagine that the multiple species in the same place, that that is more to do with its, you know, environment climate wise, like that's just a good place for all of them to be. Um, because even when you get something like there's some, sometimes you'll find in a den, Western diamondback rattlesnakes and some of the mammals that during the summer, they're definitely like eating all summer long, but they don't during the winter. And the, the little mammals probably know that 
because, you know, they've been, they've all been using that den together for centuries. Um, and that, you know, seems that seems like that could have been the case with the whip snakes and the rattlesnakes too in the winter. And so they'll tolerate each other because, you know, this is a good, whatever, you know, their list of things they're looking for in a den, um, this fulfills all those requirements. And so that, yeah, that's probably just environmental, but for the within a species, why they are using, you know, this spot instead of this other spot, um, the sites where we worked for my master's research, um, there were two groups of dens, um, or well, it was probably one, two different dens and then some basking sites associated with each one. They were only about 400 yards away from each other. And during the summer, that's a distance easily traveled by a medium to large size rattlesnake. I mean, that's, that's nothing. They could do that in a day. Um, but during the course that, I, I mean, far as we know, um, we've got some friends that are still going to those sites and we've known about them and have, you know, visited them off and on um, for 10 years. And there is no mixing of those snakes. The ones that, you know, are one winter at site A, they are never seen at site B. If you're born at site B, you don't overwinter, you don't nest at site A because these sites are also used for nesting. So they are distinct communities is how people that study social behavior and, and other species of animals um, determine that they interact with each other, but there's no mixing across. So that speaks to something more than just environmental. There's some reason that they're returning to, to those. Things. And that was sort of what we were investigating when we started there. Like, is this just, you know, climate? Is this just a random pile of snakes that this is the only place they can go? Is there something more? So within those sites, we looked at, um, you know, on a given day, you know, at, at the, the bigger of the two sites, there were about 90 individual animals that we identified. And you'd think, and these are pretty small areas, um, you know, it's one den, that they'd all, you'd see them all together at one point, but most of them, that's not the case. They had like within those groups, they would have some animals that they were with like half the time. Half the time you would see Spooky, she was with Allie. Like they were almost always together, but you never saw Spooky with, you know, 20 other snakes that lived at that site. So they were making choices about who they would, you know, besides just the site in general and what site they would pick, but who they would hang out with on the surface when they were there. And underground, who knows what's happening because we didn't have cameras on that. But um, but when they were hanging out together on the surface, like they were making choices of who they would hang out with and who they didn't. Um, and then, uh, you know, not our work, but people ha that have worked with like, timber rattlesnakes have found that females and juveniles are more likely to den and hang out with at the den site relatives than non-relatives. That wasn't true of males, but it was true for adult females um, and juveniles of both sexes. That's so surprising to me. But you think during breeding season, your males will start to drift and that's how you get genetic diversity? I mean, are they mixing in some fashion? I would assume so because those in that system, um, you know, they're traveling greater distances from their dens and, you know, generally the way rattlesnakes work because most of them don't give birth every year. The females have, you know, years when they're tending, when they're pregnant and tending babies. And then the next um, year or two or three 
or when they're like out in feeding and that's when they're breeding with males. So yeah, that's probably how they're crossing. And the and I imagine that the males, like the den and birthplace they start off at, they're going to other sites to find females. And that was something we were hoping to look at more closely with our sites, but we weren't able to get enough um, DNA samples. It's kind of the tricky thing of we don't want to handle them and disrupt their behavior, but you actually do need to handle them. Well, handling them is the easiest way to get DNA samples. You can get shed skin, um, but you're not like guaranteed to get it from every snake the way you were if you were catching them. So we, because there had been some work done on the relatedness um, for rattlesnakes with ours, we wanted to focus on those individual behaviors and interactions first. And we're hoping to follow up with looking at how relatedness affected those relationships. Um, but just, um, I mean, we haven't sent the DNA off for analysis, but I don't think we got enough to do it, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but yeah, but that's what it, it seems like was probably the case that they are matrilineal groups um, that are led by females and the males are the ones who are, who are dispersing, but we don't have hard data on that. And uh, Jeff, go ahead. You were going to say something. Oh, just sort of getting back to your question a little bit about why they would den together. Um, you know, we when we embarked on the nature, you know, studying sort of, you know, are these things social? Um, you know, the, the prevailing hypothesis is that uh, in northern climate, in cold areas, denning habitat is very limited. You know, places where snakes are going to not freeze is limited. So they all come together. They just happen to be in the same place because there's not that many places to go because it is so cold. And, and that may very well be true that there are places there. It is true that there are places that are better than others. Obviously. I mean, you don't see them going under a, you know, a frisbee sized rock and spending the winter. They're going to not. Make it so, um, but what I do think is as we've sort of like seen a little bit further into the social um, side of things, is that the, the social side is sort of the mechanism by which they can find these spots. And, and um, these spots develop into these dens because, you know, there is sort of a, a survival of the fittest in, um, in a cultural sense. So that they, you know, the, the, the places that where the snakes survive year after year, more, you know, there are more and more snakes that it smells like more and more snakes. It doesn't smell like dead snakes. Um, so, so more and more snakes, they they develop a affinity over time for going to where other snakes are, and so we see that uh, in timber rattlesnakes they have sort of um you know they'll they'll follow each other around. Rulon Clark has shown that um, snakes and, and I think this was in a contrived sort of an experimental framework mm. where where a snake has successfully gotten a prey item, other snakes will go to that same exact spot and. And set up to hunt, you know, like, hey, some, you know, Judy was did awesome here. I'm going to try this spot. And so, so this this use of public information that these snakes can smell what's gone on, they can read a little bit into the history. Um, that is a, that is very beneficial at northern latitudes. And we see it in timber rattlesnakes. I think we see a very similar thing in um, Arizona black rattlesnakes. That are they are the the basal group there they are the first split off of prairie rattlesnakes um, who, who also will den in great numbers as pretty famous but um, the the Arizona black rattlesnake is the 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 offshoot from prairies that sort of um, begat uh, 
the Oregonus clade, you know, all the Western, the Northern Pacific, um, the rattlesnakes that really have been successful in Northern and mountainous places where it gets very cold in the winter. And I think a lot of that ability to exploit those habitats that are extremely seasonal has to do with this social um, facility for, you know, finding where other snakes are hanging out and, 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 you know, they can, they can read into the successes a little bit. So, you know, like you see somebody that's winning at the slot machine, like, you know, when they're gone an hour later, like you might go try that slot machine. Mm -hmm. And if it's a hot one, then like, you know, you're going to win too. So, so it's, it's a very interesting kind of evolutionary um, uh, trajectory that, that they've kind of figured out like, yeah, you know, like we're going to pay attention to what's going on. And, and so, you know, it, it, is it learning, you know, are they, are they learning these things or are they, is it more of a hardwired, like, we're just going to follow this scent until it seems good. And, and so there, there, are, it, it, you know, there's tons of questions and a lot of this is just, you know, like me having a couple of beers and looking at the sky and being like, <laughs> just oh, thinking. Cool. Like, so, so we don't, you know, we haven't published on this, but I, but I think there really is a story here that these, um, these dens um, for these northern snakes, there really is this this aspect that they they're they're in they they're into what each other is doing, and, and that has led to their success. They they come out and and they they breed they bask together. They have these basking sites that they'll use year after year, and the juveniles uh, will try. They'll they'll follow different ones around. They don't they actually aren't that particular about who they hang out with, but they do like to hang out with other snakes, and they're kind of like, oh yeah, this is a good spot, you know, like. In the next year, you find them shedding in the same place where one shed the year before, and so, so they're they're kind of keying in and they're they're learning from each other. And whoever is alive is successful, and you know, in a sense of you know, they survive past being a baby, and and so there is some, you know, there there's there's something there, and and they're they're following each other around and they're doing cool stuff, and it's blows my mind. You know, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm just get a little verklempt. <laughs> yeah, I think, well, I think like snakes are the last thing that for a while we would equate with communicating or intelligence or any type of learned behavior. It was always just like an extremely dumb creature that runs off of just basic instincts. And that's pretty much it. Yep. So, yep. so knowing that kind of stuff is like mind blowing in comparison <laughs> to, you know, to the last however long. And, and, you know, and you get that sense sometimes from captive from captive born stuff. They don't have to deal with any of this stuff. They get a they look a dead piece of meat again, like sweet, you know, like <laughs> it's like the kid that never went to school, you know, they don't they don't really have to be that sharp. It doesn't matter. So so when you get to see this stuff in the wild, this you know, these dens that, you know, I, I don't know how long has this den been active? You know, is is this been a continuous thing that snakes have figured out where to hang out for a thousand years, ten thousand years? Like we don't we don't know how much it is an accumulation of like snake um, scents that have you know s c e n t that are on these rocks that they're all queuing into mm-hmm. and remembering or not remembering but but keying into you know we we have no idea how much of that is there um, and it's it's just you know it's what would it be like if if it wasn't like that um, we there are other species in contrast. Um, things like like Mojaves and um, some of the, like sidewinders and things that aren't they 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 aren't as um, geographically uh, faithful. You know they 
they kind of have a, a wide open landscape. They don't have these fixtures in their environment that they got to return to every year. So it, it's a, it's a way different story, you know, like the, the, they're sort of more on their own and, and there's a benefit, an evolutionary benefit to just being more of a wanderer and maybe figuring out for yourself and just maybe just reading the tea leaves and, you know, I'm going to hunt here because it smells like a rat. Um, so there, you know, you could, you see these different behaviors and, and, and it's, an, it's a nice contrast to the, to these kind of colder climate, high elevation animals that do come together. It's, it's fascinating. Um, in the chat, Carly um, was asking about the two dens you were talking about that are for, uh, about 400 yards apart. Uh, she said, I wonder if something happened to den A where they can't use it anymore, do you think the majority would go to den B? Or you know, yeah. like, would there be the overcrowding? Like since right now they're not mixing at all, but like total hypothetical question, but yeah. Yeah, no, that's a, that is an interesting question. And we have thought about that because they're um, at a different site. There was a den, it used to be a den. And then we haven't seen rattlesnakes there for a long time. And it, um, it actually is one that's sitting that we called the road den because it's right, right next to the road. And, you know, we've seen people like, you know, picnicking up there and stuff. And then we haven't seen a rattlesnake there for a long time. And we want, we're just like, well, maybe they just got sick of dealing with those people versus like some sort of violence happening or, or maybe some combination. It's like, yeah, so what? And fortunately, it wasn't a site where we had been working like, you know, often enough to identify individuals and see them pop up in other places. But yeah, we were kind of speculating about that too. Like, so... Do they just die? Do they not go anywhere? Do they go to that other den, which is, I don't know, the next closest one's probably probably even less than 400 yards. Like, yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think they would. So that um, in places where people have studied it, um, they have shown that at least with baby rattlesnakes, the mechanism that they find their winter den um, the first time is by following the scent of their mom or even other rattlesnakes of the same species. So, so it seems like they could do that. Um, but then like, you know, again, with this, like, is there some sort of hierarchy or other thing? Like would the other snakes like welcome them in, you know, is there some maximum amount that those dens could hold? And they're like, no, you're not related to me. We've already got our 50 snakes. Like you got to move on. Yeah. I don't know. I, and that's, um, you know, something that, someone who's more interested in that question than maybe the snakes themselves. Like that's there's kind of exper a yeah. horrible experiment yeah. here waiting to happen. Um, Interesting question. <laughs> an experiment that we're not prepared to do. It's cool. And, and, and who knows, but um, another observation that I'll bring up is that um, at, at one of our sites, it's, it's pretty high elevation. It gets cold in the, the timing is similar to like Northern Timbers where they're giving birth in early September. And then, you know, by early October, they're getting ready to, to bed down for the winter. Um, and well, and we've done a lot of work in the birthing season. So that's early to mid September. We've been up there a lot. And, and what we see is like snakes will kind of come back and check on things. They'll kind of check it out. They'll, mm. they'll come through and they'll actually, you know, a male will come through and like, see what's going on in a nest, like check out the babies and the babies will be like, Oh, big guy, you know, hang out. Um, so, but, but it's almost like, they're just like, okay, just the den's still here. Like see who's hanging out, you know, it seems all good. Um, so there is like, 
it's not like they're just they're shooting back to the den and they're just going down and and maybe some do that maybe some are out there a little bit late but there is a little bit of like scoping it out you know if there is a decision to be made they sort of i think they allot themselves that opportunity um you know if they came to a den and it was um, so we had another den where they did some uh prescribed burning and they and they did a lot of uh it was a very we we didn't study it very long we only ever found a few snakes there but um but they had come through the forest service had come through and cut down some trees and burned some slash piles so this rock pile that you know had a nice big oak growing out of it and had um it was a little bit tempered from some some of the, the brutal high elevation sun um it just kind of became real scorching so um after you know we found it and i think there was a couple snakes there the next year we found a couple snakes but then that was kind of it so the conditions can change at these places. You know, there can be a fire. There can be some some manipulations like what the Forest Service uh, did to this particular spot. And it can change. And I, I think they do have the ability to to probably follow other scent trails and, and be like, oh, you know, we got to find someplace else. Or, or even, you know, there's probably the individual that's maybe going to, you know, I'm going to start my own den over here. I'm, I hate all these other guys. Like, <laughs> I, I like this area to hunt in the summer, so I'm going to be way over here. And maybe they'll, they, you know, they, they'll probably give it a go. Occasionally, we find an individual snake by itself in the spring. So, so there probably is a little bit of, of crossing and exploring, um, but we just, it's a, probably at a, a level that we just don't detect. Yeah, because we're obviously like biased by the the most successful. Like we we know where this den is, so we're always going to look there. So even though we try to like scout around and look at anything else that to our eyes seems like could be a place um you know we're definitely missing some especially if there's only one snake there because it's not like they're out every day so they're real easy to miss um and it's just you know it's easier to find a rock pile that's big and has 20 snakes than one where there's like two guys um but but yeah i mean that almost certainly happens and we've we've definitely seen like within these sites, how they use them changed with vegetation changes. So this was a good basking site last year associated with this rock pile, but now, you know, it got burnt or we had a lot of rain over the winter. So it's, it's not getting good sun. So now they've shifted over to the other side and we've seen, you know, what we think are other snakes queuing in on that. Um, there was one snake, Alice, who gave birth to, butterfly at you know this this nest site and then four no sorry five years later or six years later when butterfly was old enough to give birth um her mom alice had since moved her nest to a nearby rock pile which could have been due to vegetation changes or boredom i don't know um but instead of butterfly returning to where she was born she went to her mom's nest site that year even though it was a new site yeah the current site so probably like, you know, queuing off of what the snakes were doing and just, you know, sort of the robotic, you know, we think about some animals, it's like, this is where I was born, like turtles. And I'm not calling turtles dumb or robots, but, I, you know, and this is probably an assumption about them too. You know, they just returned to the beach where they were born. Um, that's what we would have um, predicted. And as much as anything for Butterfly, was she was going to go back to the nest where she was born, but instead she went to her mother's new nest, which she, you know, had to have found like based off you know, smelling her mother was there um, and maybe detecting that that other site for whatever reason wasn't good six years later. But it was interesting to see her follow that. So there is some plasticity associated with these behaviors. 
Um, and a lot of which we're just we're missing because we're we're limited by what by what we can see and find and how the amount of cameras you can put out. Yeah, how many cameras <laughs> we can put out <laughs> for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, so many things. I mean, a lot of this stuff, like you know, it's like oh, it's it's new, it's cool. We didn't know about this before. A, a lot of these behaviors we did kind of know about them before, but because people and and honestly, like snake scientists being kind of the worst, like we make these assumptions that snakes aren't capable of these things. So we don't look past, you know, explanations about, um, you know, it was like hundreds of years when white people were like, oh, well, the mom is there with the baby snakes because she's too tired to crawl away. And so they didn't bother looking for anything else because that's the assumption. Snakes are not capable of these things. So that's the end of story. And if you don't look for it, you're not going to see these other things until someone, some ones with more open mind. And I'm, this is not us. I mean, I heard about this from someone else before we started looking at it, um, you know, considered that maybe there were other things going on. Um, so yeah, we're just, you know. So, and just as an aside, the things that we've seen are the squirrel story where, you know, mom snake gives birth and the squirrel is hassling, you know, the squirrel comes in and checks a few days, but then once the, and, and there's not much effect from the female, the mother snake, but then once the babies are born, you know, the snake is, the squirrel shows up, the snake rears up and is like, get the hell out of here. Um, so you get that to the squirrel and we experienced that where we'd be checking on these pregnant females who are out basking, they're, they're cooking babies, you know, they're, they're out, they're in the sun every day. They're just trying to like get these things to develop so they can move on with their life. Um, uh, and they would be very tolerant of us. We'd get up there and get these like cool photos, like, "Hey, this is a good, you know, like." Yeah. She likes there. me. We're friends. They, never, <laughs> they wouldn't rattle and bail, you know. And but then once the babies are born, you know, we had I think the very first nest, the very first year that we studied this this stuff, um, Woody is like under this rock, and she's got babies under there, and she's coming out of this hole at us like, oh, you don't even get over here. Yeah, she chased me. She chased me away from her nest. Don't tell people that. I had a snake chase. Yeah, so so they're, you know, it's pretty clear there's a a change in behavior. They're protecting their babies. Um, You know, they're they're very early on in the first days. Um, What we've seen on a couple cameras is, the female will poke her head out, like they'll be inside. It's early, it's cold. The female will kind of like, coast is clear, okay? And then all the babies come out. You know, there, there's this, this reading of the environment and the babies are respecting, you know, the mom somehow. However, that's, you know, enforced and governed is, is still, you know, very much open to study. But, but we've just seen these very tantalizing little tidbits of, um, you know, the mom is is cued in and she's, she's watching out for these guys. Yeah. Um, and, and over the course of the first couple of weeks, the babies get more and more bold and pretty soon mom's like, eh, you're on your own now. Um, but and it's, you know, it, it's pretty clear, you know, we behavior is a, is a difficult thing to get good sample size on, you know, it's, it's a, it's, it's such a, to be very quantitative about it is difficult to get the, the numbers where you're like, this proves that, you know, this is, this is unrefutable evidence that this is going on. So, so we kind of have to rely a little more because we we're averse to manipulating snakes too much. We have to rely a little bit more on these like um, anecdotes that we've seen over and over. And, you know, anecdotes that you see over and over actually are Those data. Are data. <laughs> right. so, 
three times, four times, five times, it's, it's consistent among different snakes, then it's pretty compelling evidence. And, uh, there's only so much you can do with the timing and, you know, just the yeah. way snakes, mm-hmm. you just, know, live in general. It's hard to, to, you know, slap this stuff in a hard hitting journal when you've got like, you saw it four times, you know, but, but it's, it's a convincing story and, and we're, you know, yeah. And we're more interested in, you know, I, and we do intend to publish some of the social behavior stuff, but I think, what we think is more important for the snakes and conservation is getting these messages out to the public and a, a compelling story about one or two snakes is more meaningful to people than statistics anyway. Yeah. Um, so yeah, not totally a lazy thing, but the storytelling, I mean, that's, that's real important. That's how humans communicate with each other. I mean, myths, fables, game of Thrones, whatever, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that's how we learn. That's how we speak to each other. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's important to get those out there too. Yeah. It's how you relate to other beings, you know, your, your N of a hundred and your P of 0.001, like, uh, that doesn't really do it for mm-hmm. most people. Yeah. And, you know, and thinking about how, um, you know, for all of us that, that care about snakes and it's maybe not, you know, in your, or your ability or, you know, your interest to like go to school and get degrees and get a job at, you know, whatever you think it means to do conservation, to do like, you know, get a job at a wildlife agency or an NGO or whatever, um, telling stories and sharing your knowledge and for working with animals like snakes. But I mean, this is true of a lot of wildlife, really, Um, you know, using stories to share, you know, not just positive messaging about snakes, but even stories to illustrate like a conservation problem. If you can do it, that that is a way that anyone can get involved in conservation um, and help wildlife or help, you know, even like issues that seem like they don't lend themselves very well to storytelling, you know, something like climate change. Well, that's boring. That's just about temperatures going up and down. But if you can tell a story about a densite that, you know, has been like on the decline because it's been drying out and it's been getting hotter and now it's, it's no longer a place for these snakes to go. But, you know, there's a lot of ways that you can use stories and just your individual observations of how, what you've learned about these animals from seeing them in the wild that can have a huge impact because, I mean, yeah, stories are, are powerful. They can be powerful in both directions. So anytime we can use them in a positive way to help the animals and the places we care about, like do it. <laughs> yeah. I think scientists aren't very often good orators or, you know, they do all this research, but they can't, you can't, you know, There's translate no, it to the general not emotion public. In, in science. Most of the time, which makes sense. I get it. Right. I don't, you know, but in this case, you want the emotion. It's because, well, it's become very dogmatic that you can't, you know, thou shalt not, think about snakes as humans, like anthropomorphism is, is totally forbidden. And, but like Melissa said, it's how we relate to things. It's how our brains think is through experience and, and, and having um, empathy for something uh, is, you know, that's how you experience, you know, that that's how we go through life is, is that's how we understand other things that are going on is through other, through, the experience of things. So like we, we kind of can relate, if we can relate to it and we can understand it better. Um, and so stories are great for that. 
But the other thing, the other thing, you know, is we're hitting you with their messaging here is like, you know, you're, you've already got converts here, but one of the things that we try to do, and, and this is another thing where we're like, you know, turned our back on the, the, the science um, commandments is that, you know, we, we use pronouns for the, we don't call everything it, you know, because we don't know. It's like, I, you know, it looks like it's probably a male. It's go ahead and call it a he, you know, you can call it a he, you can ascribe a little bit of like motivation when you're just talking about a snake, um, you know, use a name. Yeah. Names are good, but, but just talking about them, like they have motivations and, and, you know, if you're in a conversation with the general public, if you're at a, if you're at a show or you're talking to family member to family members, it's like kind of getting into their perspective a little bit, even if it's, you know, even if you're just bullshitting, um, that has an effect on people to where they, you know, they don't consider it as so much of an other, as so much of a cold, like killing machine. So, so just in everyday language, trying to say, you know, like he or she, or the mom, you know, this is the mom, this is the baby, you know, moms and babies is, these are like kind of tug at the heartstrings. So, um, so there, there is a lot of like language stuff that you can shift. Um, you know, the, the way that people say, uh, talk about snakes as being aggressive or that they attack, you know, it's, you know, we, we tend to favor things like defensiveness and, you know, these are just defensive behaviors. Um, so there's, there's a lot of things that are, that are subtle that you can do that they can kind of, um, change the conversation a little bit. Um, and that are no less correct than, you know, no one thinks twice about talking about an animal or a snake being aggressive or scared. Those, those are emotions that is implying an intent that we don't know most of the time. You can kind of measure fear, but aggression, that's sort of like having to get into their head and knowing like, you know, their thoughts. But somehow when you talk about the, you know, it's like, oh, the snake likes another one or they love this one. You know, it's like, oh, that's anthropomorphic. It's not any more than talking about them being aggressive or scared. Like they're all emotions. Um, so you can kind of pick and choose to, you know, use these and not use these. And they are, you know, just as backed by science. You know, when I talk about some of the findings from the social behavior work. Um, when we talk about two snakes that spent more than, you know, a statistically significant amount of time together, they're called friends. Because when I look at people I know and think about who spends a statistically significant amount of time together compared to others, they're friends. That's just a word that, you know, most people understand versus fewer syllables than spending a statistically significant time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and whatever I had to call it in the thesis. I don't even remember because it was like nonsense words because we can't use friends. <laughs> it's too loaded. Yeah, it's too loaded. Um, but, it, you know, it's like this is it has a definition that is backed by math and observations like, you know, so why not use that? And people understand it. And a mommy is just a mommy. Like, yeah, I could say mother or the parent of, or I don't know what, but it's the mommy. Is <laughs> the babysitter. Like, that's what they're doing. <laughs> yeah, I think it's something that even in the hobby, we shy away from, obviously. Uh, see, it's hard in the hobby. It gets more it goes negative. The, the pendulum swings 
so far that way a lot in the hobby. And then, and then you're treating a snake like a mammal and you're doing more bad than good. And, <laughs> and then I'm like tickling it. Right. And when there's it two and... snakes out in the wild who choose to spend time together. Yes. I'll call those friends. Your snake that you have in your house isn't choosing. That you're to, right, yeah. You're not choosing to spend time. They, they don't have yeah. a choice in that matter. Like you, you're forcing their you're companionship. You're forcing that. There. So it's like that. <laughs> I, I don't say like when people are like, "Oh, my snake really loves you, me." They share a gel. I'm like, gel I don't. Toilet. I can't. I can't say that your snake really loves you. Yeah. Like I can't. I can't go that way. Like I can't. I'm not on board with that. Yeah. You may be yeah. an interesting warm obstacle. I don't know. Yeah, no, that is different. And I, when we talked more, when we had, when we lived in a place for a while where there were individual snakes that lived around our house. So we knew them by name and we'd be like, oh, so like, is Henry the Western Diamondback, like he's your friend? And I was like, well, I think of him that way. I doubt he thinks, if he thinks of me at all, like, I don't think he thinks of me that way at all. I wish, but I don't think so. And I don't, trust that he's thinking of me that way because much as i like him i'm not petting him because he's he's still a rattlesnake if he got scared like that would be an expensive and painful hospital bill for your friend (laughs) for my friend and me (laughs) yeah so i guess and something that we didn't we didn't really hit on but uh kind of predation what are you seeing that is feeding on the rattlesnakes and also uh what are they feeding on Ah, good question. So we haven't, you know, I I thought, and that was kind of like the dream when we started putting cameras on the nest, especially was to see a a predation event, because I really wanted to see a a rattlesnake mommy defend, you know, her babies. Um, And we we did see her, we have seen one or a couple times them defend from a squirrel threat, but, but not a predation, you know, not a predation event on either side that we've caught. And we haven't, this, this guy showed up at uh, one of our dens oh, last yeah. week. Hey. He was about. Did he have a meal? Well, we didn't we see it tell. on camera, but <laughs> he was, uh, well, whatever it is, he, she was maybe 10 feet away from at least 14 rattlesnakes. Um, yeah. And it may be the time of year when they're not looking for a huge meal like that. But So in case anyone is just listening and not watching, that was a picture of a, um, a desert king snake. And they're they're very well known, like snakes and rattlesnakes specifically are well represented in the the diet of that species of king snake. So to have one show up at your den, that was the closest I've come to like, we have to pull that snake out of this crack and get him out of here because like there are lots of babies there. We didn't like we couldn't. uh, I mean, we couldn't have if we wanted. Yeah, we couldn't if we wanted to. And I didn't. I mean, he's still snake and I like him, but I just would like him better if he was somewhere else. Um, but yeah, we've never gotten footage of somebody preying on a snake. We have observed a couple times. Um, we were road cruising one night. We saw a great horned owl that landed near a tiger rattlesnake. And then someone might have gotten out of the car and scared the owl away. <laughs> um, and then you came across a king. Are you twice you've come across a king snake? Um, I've seen getting king, another snake. Yeah, I've seen king snakes eating snakes. Um, we've uh, we've had a number of snakes with radio transmitters in them um, succumb to predators. Most of the time, it's not obvious. Uh, you find a transmitter with a you know a little dried up skin or whatever on it, and and that's all you get. But 
Um, one time we had a black-tailed rattlesnake that was in a hole for way too long. And, and I went out there, it was maybe, it was maybe two weeks later and there's this, you know, four foot king snake shed that's coming out of this hole. And it's like, Oh man, poor girl. So I, you know, and then after a little bit more time we dug up and that was just the transmitter. So it seemed like the king snake ate this rattlesnake digested shed and crapped out the transmitter and got out of there. A liar snake. Trans, well, there was a transmitter and a lyre snake that ended up in a great horned owl nest. So that was yeah. almost definitely predated on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are probably a half a dozen transmitters we found where it's kind of like, oh, was it a fox, a coyote? You know, it's it's tough to say if you if you you know go two or three days between tracking. And I know we found like a few times we've seen um, we've like put a camera on a snake hunting and seen something that looked like a strike attempt a couple times. And we found dead or dying animals that like they didn't have, it's like, okay, a, a pack rat or a kangaroo rat doesn't just stumble out of the bushes and collapse. Like that seems like mm, you might've gotten bit by something kind of thing. And so then we've like watched it and seen a snake find it. That's happened a couple times. Um, but I don't, did we ever, the tree lizard, the Arizona black rattlesnake eating a tree lizard. That was, you found, did you find him with the lizard or? No, that's the only. Okay. That is the only one. Yeah. This is, this is a. Uh, this is not a video that we've shared because not, it's terrible to watch. This is a previously unreleased. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I was on a hike and I saw a snake that was hunting near a little water hole and I was like ready for lunch. I, um, I put a video camera on it and then I went around the rock and I was like eating uh, I was eating my sandwich <laughs> and I heard this commotion and I'm like, what the heck? And I look over and the snake's like sitting there with a lizard in its mouth and um, the camera got it, but I didn't see it personally, but that's, yeah, that's the only like strike that I've been, that's as close as I've got to witnessing a strike in the wild. I'm so shocked. Just in, it's so, such a, it's such a, it's happened so fast and it's such a, I mean, you have to have like so much patient to, Patience and good luck to be like there when it when happens. And when you're there, you're suppressing their behavior. So yeah. this is something that we see on our time lapse and our videos is, you know, these are running for days and days and days. And we actually, when we're trying to get the full activity and um, we try to stay away from these areas, but sometimes it's like, you got to change out data cards or batteries. And so sometimes, or you got to go to town because you got some bullshit human activity you got to do. So it's, and I guess I got to go at three o'clock. So, so you go up there and you change out the batteries. And so what you see on some of these cameras is, you know, you might see a shadow of a human. So these snakes are all moving around. They're doing things, they're interacting. And then there's 10 minutes where they're just like, oh, shit. <laughs> uh, and that just happens to coincide when you're there. So when you're there, they don't look like they're doing anything. They don't look bothered, but they're, you're suppressing their behavior. Yeah. Um, and, they're, so, and their prey and their predators are threatened by us as well. You know, like we're kind of not top of the food chain, but pretty much everybody's scared of us. So they're not going to show up when you're there either. I like, we never get to see the squirrels coming up to the snakes. Like that doesn't happen when you're sitting there. If you're sitting there with a snake, like owl isn't going to come and like try to take one out, like, because they don't like us either. And you know, the, well, the lizards actually maybe would come up, but um, but yeah, same thing with like the little mammals and stuff, because, you know, yeah, it's that, that human elephant. We ruin everything. <laughs>
So how far, I mean, are you away exactly from the den when you're doing this? Um, it, so when we've been like intense studying at a site, like often we'll have a, a campsite that's a, you know, like a 20 minute drive or walk depending on the terrain so that we can kind of like our, our system and we were doing the social behavior work, which was the most, like we would, we would go out like early in the morning before the snakes would come out. We'd change any batteries and flashcards and the cameras that needed to be changed. And then would just leave it for 24 hours. Um, or we might come in the middle of the day to just kind of go around um, just in case we had camera failure and we walk around with our DSLRs and binoculars and try to document everybody that was out. So we'd have um, better photos and then also just backups. Um, that's the ideal situation. That isn't always the case. I mean, lately, since we're not graduate students who have nothing to do except that, um, we'll go out, you know, for a weekend and, and stay somewhere close by and set up cameras in the morning and come get them the next day or now that we've been kind of messing around with with GoPros to get better video, the batteries and um, memory doesn't last as long because, man, those little suckers like generate like hundreds of gigs in, I don't know, over the course of a few hours. So you're just constantly changing stuff and having to visit, you know, every like two or three hours, which is not ideal because you're probably messing up their behavior. Although then we watch you and it's like, oh. Like they return to normal pretty quickly <laughs> or what it's looks a, like normal. It's a, it's a sort of a composite methodology and, and yeah, we don't have our, our, our driving force here is that we want to get footage of these animals doing what they normally do. And, and so, um, but there's like a little bit of give and take because, you know, we also want to identify individuals. So the best way to do that often is to, you know, to get, use your zoom lens and get just that right angle. Um, so, so yeah, we, ideally the cameras would do all the work, but sometimes we go in and, you know, we have to be there for the equipment for whatever reason, but then we also like, well, we want to get a quick count of how many snakes are here. So we'll go around and like, uh, we tried, you know, spooking them sort of the, you know, when you play operation and you hit the side, it's like, you hear a buzz and you're like, oh man, I'm out. You know, I, my turn's over. So, so, so we try to not disturb their behavior, but you know, it's, it's unavoidable at some level. Um, but so ideally, yeah, we're, we're, we're letting the cameras do all the work, but, but we do, we do refine over time. So we, um, you know, we're, we're there during the day to try to figure out like, where are these guys going? And then, you know, we watch footage and then it's like, well, we need to change this camera angle because of the sun or because the snakes are mostly here. Or, um, so it's kind of like an iterative process where we're trying to refine it and, and get the best, the cleanest information we can. Um, but typically Spooking a snake is like, you're doing it wrong. Um, if they're just holding tight, you know, we hope that they habituate just a little bit to us where we're not going to, you know, totally disrupt the party. Um, but it'll just be like, dude, my parents like, mm -hmm. all right, they're gone. You know, we can go back to what we were doing. So that's kind of our, um, you know, that's kind of what we do. We, we never handle snakes at dens. You know, we just, we don't want to change their behavior at all. We have, we do have some evidence of a den where they were doing some mark recapture, um, and and people said that um, before the study began, you know, the snakes were out on the surface. They would still rattle and spook, but you'd see stuff going on. And then once they started grabbing and measuring and marking every snake, they were just you know 
you'd see it, you'd hear a buzz and the tail going down, you know, into the rocks. You just, they, they, they change their behavior and it, and it makes sense. You know, if they're, if they're persecuted, they're going to do something different. Yeah. Um, and so that's another thing that's between these dens where uh, the social behavior stuff was, was focused and the, the place where we work now is we actually see quite a, a, a difference in the, the behavior of the snakes where um, what was nice about this first place is that the snakes really didn't spook too much. Um, they would sit out and they would just kind of like, you could get in there and you could get some, some pretty photos. You could be five feet away. And for the most part, you wouldn't notice a change in their behavior. Um, but where we work now, it's, it's like they're, if they see you, they're just like, no, they're, we don't like you at all. We're, we're going to bail. We're going to buzz. We're going to like get into cover as quick as we can. So it's, it's way, it's, it's much more of a tenuous kind of a endeavor. We're just, we're really trying to dance around the outskirts as much as we can and, and use binoculars and long lenses. So you, you mentioned identifying them. How does one identify visually that many snakes, whether it's, you know, sex and then also, you know, just distinguishing between. Yeah. So the, um, the sex is a little, little easier. So after, after you've looked at so many rattlesnakes, especially um, in a, in a single place, um, you know, adult male rattlesnakes, most species tend to have relatively larger heads um, and longer tails, and then generally are just usually bigger than females. Um, so when we're classifying them as males, you know, the way that we classified them were males, females, and we mean adult males, adult females, and juveniles, which were basically defined as they are not big enough to be able to tell the difference yet. Um, as they, once they reach sexual maturity, um, female rattlesnakes, for, based on available research and data, shift all of their resources into having babies. So they, they basically stop growing or their growth slows a whole lot, whereas the males just keep getting bigger because they aren't spending as many resources on having babies. You know, they have to use some for like finding females, but it's not as, it's not as costly as it is for the females. Um, so that's a little, a little more straightforward. Um, so what we did to identify individuals, because we wanted to actually be able to say not just males and females do different stuff, but we want to be able to say spooky is behaving differently than mole man and Alice. Um, so like these names. Yeah. How do you even come up with all the names? <laughs> um, you, you have to use names. Otherwise, like you'll never. So confusing. Yeah. yeah. We worked on a project and there were these two female snakes. They were number 272 and 273. Also, they hung out together a lot and people messed up those data all the time. They would label because the, the numbers were real similar and they did similar things. There was no way to look at the data and tell which one it was because they used the same spots. Um, so we started call, calling those snakes Nicole and Susan and that stopped. People didn't get them confused anymore. Um, so that was part of it. And yeah, the, our names, it's sort of mixed. Sometimes we decide on a theme, like I had Jedi snakes at one point. Um, uh, we had a fir our first group of mommies at the, the site for the master's thesis. Um, we were naming them after our grandmothers. <laughs> um, that it's, is it's Al an, Alice, Lois. Yeah, it was an honor. I mean, I don't know how my grandmother would have felt about it. Um, and then sometimes it's just uh, so spooky was because um, she was actually of the group of grandmothers. That was not the name of anybody's grandmother, but 
She was the snake. You'd know if you'd gotten too close to that group because she would spook first and would hide. And the other three that she hung out with a lot tended to kind of stick around, but spooky would always go. So sometimes it's behavior related. Sometimes it's because they have, um, so Mole Man um, was an Arizona black rattlesnake that I thought, the first time I saw him, I thought he was a black tail and their um, scientific specific name is Molosis. So he was Mole Man. <laughs> so, and, and a lot of these, these things like spook, the behavioral, that, that comes after you've already kind of got to know them. So initially um, they do look the same. And so it's only becomes, so what we look for is identifying features. Yeah, that's um, so, what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, so you see, you know, like their, their living segment on their rattle, some of them will have like a little, it'll be black, but there'll be a, a peach colored splotch on one side. And that, that even after they shed, like there's still kind of this nice light color. So um, that's how peach got her name. Um, and, so, and then you look for the blotches. A lot of them, they have, especially the juveniles that have blotches with irregularities, um, anomalies, there'll be blotches that are joined together or they'll have a little like, you know, we say like a Florida hanging off of it. And sometimes they just have blotches that look like reminded us of things and that would become their name. So there was Africa and you mentioned butterfly and there was cock and balls and like all these different things where there's like, oh yeah, you see it and you're like, oh yeah, of course, you know, yeah. like, there's the one with the two S's. So it was like, yeah. Uh, the, so there's the, 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 how they get their names. Um, and then, yeah, we had a system that we learned from someone else who was studying snakes by, by not, you know, not using microchips or scale clips or any of the usual ways. And he would draw them. Um, and so on the Arizona blocks, they have blotches down, down their backs, kind of like um, picture. I mean, timber rattlesnakes have this too and diamondbacks. Um, and yeah, if you don't think about it, they all look the same. They just have a bunch of circles on their backs or diamonds. But yeah, if you really look at them, none of those blotches and some of them are wildly different. And so we would, you know, we would count and say like, okay, number three starting at their head um, is connected to number four on the right on the left or number five is a heart shape. And so we would find at least three um, weird blotches and that's how we would identify them. And because some of these animals we did handle when they left the social sites um, and we would paint their rattles. So we were able to have a backup and actually see that those, um, those patterns didn't change over time other than the snakes overall getting bigger. Um, and, you know, and then we, and, and because of the paint on their rattle, we would able, you know, be able to see in our pictures and on the videos that, you know, it's like we could, we could match that up and we got to do that enough times that we felt confident that those, yeah, the patterns don't change. So, so there was a way and we have like binders, binders full of rattlesnake drawings of what all these weird little blotches look like so that we could tell them apart. Um, it's trickier with some than others, the adult male Arizona blacks, Arizona blacks, aren't black when they're babies, they get darker as they get older. Um, so the older snakes, those blotches get harder and harder to see as the whole snake becomes dark. So then you're doing things like counting like yellow scales in between blotches and stuff. But, um, but yeah, usually it's a little easier than that. And it's just a matter of looking at the snakes and trying to find, um, what differentiates them from others in an area. Some species are easier than others. I don't know how one would do it with garter snakes, for instance. <laughs> yeah, I could imagine those dens. Look, it's easy because we've never tried. <laughs>
I mean, even some when we get corns and everything and we're trying to keep them separate, I'm like, mm, all of you look the same to me. Like, <laughs> you know, all the, not all, but like all the ones that are, came out, popped up. So yeah. like, oh, okay. I'm trying to sell, keep, and we've like accidentally almost like packaged one away to it's sell the pattern, one. Yeah, the yeah. head pattern. But if you're just looking at the bodies, like, mm, yeah. you know, nothing's yeah. keeping me, keeping them separate yeah, you from me. You've got to look for that most distinctive part. And, and that's, um, we, we really, we really tried to be very rigorous about that. And so every time that we saw them, we would, you know, we'd have like, here's this photo. That's the ID that gives it away. And, and, and it is like, you know, you can see this feature and, um, we really didn't have that many instances where it was like, okay, we got it down to these two or these three. Like it was either like, either you got the money shot where it was like, that's this guy or no idea. <laughs> or yeah, like it could be anyone, you know, like you just didn't get anything on it. So yeah. It's but we, very... Yeah. We were real, we were real conservative about it. We always, you know, before we said it's the snake, tried to make sure like we had, we have, so we, so Alice I've mentioned before, was one of the first, she was one of the grandmother snakes. The next year um, there was a, another big, like an old female. So a big dark female. And she eventually became TWA, which stood for the wrong Alice because someone else that went out with us was like, oh, hey, look, it's Alice again. And then after, like, we started, like, in our rigorous way of, like, you know, counting the blotches and looking at the patterns, we're like, no, it actually, it wasn't Alice. And that was, there was a Alice in Wonderland movie that came out then, and somebody, the rabbit or someone, kept talking about the wrong Alice. So, so she became the wrong Alice, and it was for that reason. It's like, she superficially, like, kind of looked like Alice, but... Like once you like really stared at her and the blotches and the number of rattles and all these things, it's like, nope, that's the the wrong Alice. <laughs> um, okay, unrelated snake question. But because of what you do and you have to be so observant about little things, does it make you observant about other things out in the world? Like when or are you, you just don't are give you, a shit about it. Or, 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 or is it like after you spend so much brain power like looking for one little difference, you're like, uh all you humans look the same or is it like you're super observant? <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah, I mean, so we have tried to, um, the, the house where we live now, we have lizards out in our yard and they come in and out of our um, attached greenhouse. And, and we're trying to do that with them now as well. Um, especially ones like alligator lizards that have bands, like see if we can identify those. Um, but and yeah, it, yeah, and they're actually like, they're so easy. The alligator lizards are. The other ones, no. no. <laughs> but the alligator lizards are. Um, yeah, no, I don't, I don't think so. I feel like that energy is very much focused on them. And I don't really, I don't want to see all those differences in people. <laughs> I never thought about it before. So, so but no, you, in people, I would say no. I mean, you, you actually, that's a very astute, astute observation that you made. Like we spent so much time just like clicking through, you know, like thousands of photos. Like I got to match this guy. And then like, you're going and just days and days and days. And, uh, and like, we don't, we're not that rigorous about it anymore because we're not taking the same data that we are, mm -hmm. that we were. But, but, you know, I think, you know, I actually do, when I'm looking at animals, I actually am like, Hey, look at that sort of irregularity. Like, oh, that would be a good way to do this. You know, like, 
suddenly, you know, everything becomes a nail when you've got the hammer in your hand. So, mm-hmm. so yes, and it is, a, it is very difficult with a lot of things, but, um, but there are some like lizards where you're like, Oh, you know, I can see this thing, this part isn't connected on this one, but this, is, but it is on this guy. So you can, you can begin to just differentiate individuals, um, based on sight and, uh, and it, it's possible, I think, to do for a lot more things than we than we allow. Yeah. But and, but it just takes and, and digital, you know, artificial intelligence is going to be able to do this pretty soon. Um, if it's not already being done with with um, animals, it probably it is being is. done with some animals. So so you know, it it's a thing that that will be, I think, commonly used in the field more with else. Um, I just reviewed a paper where they were doing that with with um, a horseshoe snake or something. I probably am not supposed to talk about this, but. but so a they're, snake. They're, and it's, not, it's actually not AI, but it is a digital, um, you know, matching kind of a thing. Um, and so, you know, it's going to be a little easier. Snakes are hard because they're such, you know, shapeshifters in the field. Like, you know, in one photo, it's it's a little bun. And in another photo, it's a stick. Like, you have to you have to train the computer to be able to understand that these things are, you know, very flexible and moving around, and their you know their outward appearance based on the angle and the the way that the snake is stretched and turned that that these patterns can change very much. But I, but I think it will be um, more feasible in the future to be able to do that kind of study. And and so that's actually a lot of what we're doing now is like we're just getting the footage. You know, who knows with climate change how long these places are going to last? You know the there's there's fires that it could sweep through so we're just we're kind of in this like just document 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 and and like we can't keep up with identifying snakes and marking individuals and 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 right now we're just kind of like there's cool stuff going on let's get out there and like get the footage and and we'll just kind of sort through it later how do you feel about like the future of i mean it seems like we are still very basic in our knowledge of snakes I mean, are you excited to see what what happens in the future? I mean, are there is there a group of people taking this on in the scientific community and finding out more and more stuff? I I think so. It's been kind of neat since um, we started doing. You know, when we like, you know, I'm thinking back. You know, talking about the pattern identification and how difficult and stuff that seems. And I remember when we first heard about that, and it's just like that's impossible. There's no way. And, you know, until this guy like went through his procedure with me and it's just like, Oh wow. No, you're, this isn't just like, it's blue. So, you know, it's whoever, like there was a way that I'm, we're starting to see that pop up more and more. Um, and, and some of the other, um, and some of the other methodologies as well. And, you know, I think it's, we're, it's a combination of, you know, having that open mind to sort of think like, what if they are doing this though? And so let's actually look for that. But then also technology that enables us to see some of these things. Um, so I, I think it, I think it's, it is slowly getting out there. Um, so there's a, this happened a few years ago in the U.S. at the, the scientific HERP meetings um, in New Orleans, 16 or 17, I forget, but there was a symposium on reptile social behavior. And, you know, and it was kind of interesting that the, the host of that symposium, the guy who organized it, Gordon Burghart, had also organized one 20 years earlier, 20? or 25, was I think it was 25. 70s? I thought it said it was 25. Anyways, okay. it, had, it had been a while. And he actually kind of mentioned that 
in some things, in some ways, it hadn't changed that much. And it was kind of a disappointment that there, there were a few examples of like, this is radically different than the way people were looking at it and talking about it before. And then, but for the most part, it hadn't changed. And what had been missing from that symposium um, because of some travel snafus um, was there's a ton of really cool work and done with um, this group of skinks, um, Egernia skinks that live in Australia and some other places close to that who have these just like crazy complex social behaviors. Um, family groups that stay in a single rock pile and are there for generations forever. Nobody ever leaves. Like that is their tight spot. Um, genetic and behavioral monogamy for life with sleepy lizards. Like people think of birds as like, oh, they mate for life and they come back. Birds cheat on each other all the time. They are big time cheaters. But these lizards, like they're serious. I mean, they split up and they do thing, I think in the winter, but they come back together every summer and stick together as long as the other one is alive, like forever. It's really rare. It's, this, is, this is actually the rare behavior and among animal animals. Yeah, and the animals and humans included. Um, and, you know, and all kinds of other stuff too, like cooperative hunting, um, building these like complex like tunnel system homes because some of them live underground that they build together and maintain together. And they're also families like just this stuff that no one would have thought that reptiles of any kind were capable of. And all of this has been, you know, discovered in the last 15, 20 years. Um, and that's, you know, that is, is radically changed. And I think that the more people learn about that, because that's still, you know, getting out there outside of like Australia. Um, I mean, I remember reading about it and being like, what? <laughs> like no one has looked at that stuff in animals and this part of the world, um, that that gives other people ideas to study stuff. And so like, you know, we've seen studies pop up and I don't think, and I'm not trying to take credit for this, but you know, other people using cameras to look at different aspects of snake and other reptile behavior, people using um, the patterns to identify animals in situations where they just like can't catch them. Um, so it's really cool to see all that out there because I just, I think that enables us to look at things that we weren't able to before um, that you just, you can't see when you're just catching everything and handling everything or, you know, Doing radio telemetry like limits the number of animals you can look at versus versus the site based stuff that that we've done where we're just focusing on an area and just, you know, whoever happens to show up becomes part of the study. And the, the wet blanket of your advisor saying, like, they're not yeah. doing that. Oh Don't you're not going to study <laughs> that. So so now that there's like a, the door is open a little bit and people are seeing these things, there are publications, there are videos, there are people reporting um, you know, social behavior and, and, you know, parental care, things that were, were poo-pooed in the past or dismissed easily. Um, that stuff's out there a little more. So no, yeah, we're, we're seeing people that are inspired. To, I mean, this is the exciting stuff. This is why people get into studying animals because they love them, right? Like, um, you know, like I want to study these kinds of things because they excite me, you know, like not that many people that love animals are like, man, I really want to, spend my years in a genetics lab, you know, that, you know, it's sort of a different, that's a different pathway, yeah. but for the people that love the animals, like there's, there is inspiration to look at this stuff and, and we are, you know, developing the tools and the technology that this stuff will really, I think, 
we'll be seeing more, more and more of these things around the world. And, uh, and that, I hope, you know, that that's the case as well. So it seems like, obviously, you can get a decent sample set. You have dandy, you have communal animals. How do we figure out the behaviors of our solitary animal? You know, <laughs> how the hell are we ever going to figure that out? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 certainly more challenging. Um, but, you know, it seems like there are sites that even animals that are solitary that multiple animals will use. And it, yeah, you're not going to get the sample sizes that you are when you can find one of those communal sites. But it's been kind of interesting. It's like a good log to hunt at is a good log to hunt at or shed for, you know, several different species of snakes. And, you know, and a lot of it's just being um, patient and, uh, you know, and taking the time to observe to like see this stuff happen. And you know, yeah, just, you know, totally like hands off with solitary animals. You're not going to get, you know, sample sizes to put something in nature or whatever. I mean, we aren't either. Um, but you you can see cool stuff by just by just being patient. And if that's and if that's your goal is just to see something neat happen. I mean, when we have seen um, predation events like those, that is not at those communal sites. One, one time it was, but for the most part, it's not. So, um, you know, that's just about looking around and being patient. If there's a dead rodent or lizard that seems like he's in an odd place, why is, you know, wild animals don't just collapse and die of a heart attack generally. <laughs> and so maybe just like sit down a distance away and like keep an eye on that just in case somebody shows up. That seems like such a crapshoot, but I think most people like see that and they're like, nah, there's no way I could get that lucky. And so they just, they just go. But actually it turns out that you get to see a tiger rattlesnake come along and eat that little guy <laughs> or a rock rattlesnake or whoever it is. So yeah, I think, uh, I don't know when you're out herping kind of the coolest stuff you see is when you get lucky because you yeah. see the stuff you're not looking for, I guess. But um, what were you going to say? Um, a little bit ago, you talked about pathways, and I've been wanting to talk about this for the whole two hours. Okay, so your major in college was in, oh, I have it up. Shoot, no, I can't remember. <laughs> it is in wildlife, watershed, and rangeland resources. What all does that encompass? <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> what, all, what do people who get that major typically do? <laughs> So I think that that I think most people in that program, because it was real um, management. So I think that's mainly geared towards people who go into um, like working at your state fish and wildlife agency or uh, other like management things. So they're managing wildlife populations. They're managing land um, and other resources. It was uh, it was kind of a catch all for that sort of like hands on stuff and to be perfectly honest, when I was looking at different programs, I was kind of, um, had been pushed. I had, I'd gotten some influence early on from someone who their career at the time was doing environmental education, which I was back then, this was in high school, like really interested in it as well. Like that seemed like fun to work in a nature center and get to talk to people. And so he had kind of like told me that it's like, yeah, trying to find stuff in, um, degrees and programs with, 
management um, in the name versus like a, a zoology or biology or even an ecology degree. Um, a lot of times that encompasses more sort of hands-on and like doing things outside um, versus a biology or ecology program that you might get more of that like genetics or other lab stuff. Um, so that was part of it. The other part of it was <laughs> when I transferred to the University of Arizona, if I had been in the ecology program, I would have had to take organic chemistry and I really didn't want to. <laughs> and the classes in the resource management program were a lot more fun. It was like not just mammalogy, but it was um, uh, it was something more broad that in incorporated more of like a, a conservation stuff. So often the conservation stuff is more with that. But I think it changes. I think it's changed a lot, too, um, because these are, um, you know, kind of constantly evolving. But, you know, it's sort of I think if you're thinking about what you want to do and where you want to go, talking to people who are in the program, other students and professors, because I, I think the names aside, like they have very different cultures, like at different universities and changing over time. And, you know, if you're wanting to do more outside stuff versus lab stuff, and it's not, you know, I have my own preference of where I'd like to be. Labs are cold and you have to wear shoes. So not for me. Um, but, you know, for a lot of people, like that's what they like and they just want to do their like herping outside stuff on the weekend and not have it be part of their job, which I can totally get that too. Um, but yeah, it, I don't know. College is an interesting thing. Grad school even more so with like the degree names and program names, like definitely having a relationship with what you're doing, but not as much as who you're working with and just sort of the, the flavor of what what that means at that school and that place and time. Cause yeah, I don't know shit about managing a watershed. <laughs> that was just like, that was the very broad. And that was like, if you wanted to do wildlife biology and work in the field, that was the program that you're in. And I think like somewhere down the line, what would not fit on my resume or on the website, it does say like concentration on wildlife, but it is seriously like that degree title is so long. It never fits in a box when I have to put it one. So basically, you both just wanted to find a way to be in the field as much as possible. Uh, so I, I wanted it to amount to something for the snakes to be, you know, to have a conservation angle. And, um, uh, and yeah, like the field work is awesome. Um, that's, that's really where um, you know, it's kind of what I grew up doing and how I fell in love with the animals is like, you get to go to these cool places and see these cool animals. So I definitely wanted that to be part of it. Um, and there's, you know, and then, and like Melissa said, there's a lot of directions you can, you can go there. Um, and, and so, but I wanted conservation to be part of it. And so that's, that was the track that I was on was sort of like, you know, looking at the effects of urbanization or fire or, um, you know, just land use in general, um, populations of herps or endangered animals, pieces of concern. Um, and that's, that's what a ton of people are doing as far as herp conservation. Uh, and it's valuable. We need that information, but, um, but you know, this, this twist that we've taken where it was like, oh, suddenly like behavior is really interesting and it can have this outlet for conservation by getting people to, to like understand snakes a little more just from on a personal gut level. 
Like that's, that's something that no one would have ever said is a thing. Like you can't, you're you're not, you can't study snakes and yeah, behavior in in conservation with that application is is not um, really that common. So, um, and I think it's in this case, it's sort of unique to the creepy crawly animals. Like, um, you know, you have other people that study coyotes and bats and and, uh, sharks and these loathed animals, but, but it's like, Hey, we need to, you know, study them and show people that they're actually, they've got other things going on. They've got mm-hmm. other aspects that, that are just under considered. Yeah. But so, nobody needs to do that with birds. Like everybody yeah. likes them anyway. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like yeah. Yeah. And it, you know, and in some ways I think that was my driving force, like in school for a very long time was, yeah. How do I stay outside doing fun stuff and, you know, get a job, but but yeah, now to be honest, this turn that we've taken with this focus on education, the field work is very much a supplement to that. It's like we need that material and we can't just continue telling the same stories forever and ever because it's not like we're traveling the world telling them. It's kind of the same audiences. So we need new stuff. Um, but that's a pretty small part of, of what we do now. It's like, yeah, we do still get to go outside. We moved to southwestern New Mexico so that we could just be out in our own backyard and get to see cool stuff. But as far as like what we do to further snake conservation, most of that's done, you know, talking to an audience, being at a table somewhere, giving a presentation, you know, watching. Yeah, at so much at the computer. (laughs) Like, I don't want to list that first, but honestly, like, yeah, most of it's that, unfortunately. you know, for us, because it, it is more, it's more fun to be outside, but I also get really like jazzed and excited when I get to, to share that information with people because it's, you know, because we care about these animals. Um, and so getting to see, you know, minds change, like as you're talking to them, let alone people tell you you've had that impact. It's like, that's also really exciting. As exciting as having a mommy rattlesnake chase from her babies i'm not sure but it's nice you know i get to tell that story so that's that's fun too (laughs) yeah you have the best of both worlds yeah (laughs) another thing about sort of our path and how we got here is that we we're both pretty stubborn and um and lucky Uh, and we're both you know we both love the animals and we didn't really want to see bad things happen to them and and when you when you are indoctrinated into the the cult of science <laughs> I, I really don't you know I, I do have a respect for science and, and the world that it's given us um, and and a lot of science practicing scientists I, I like but but there's this sort of um, you know like if you're touchy-feely if you love the animals like yeah you you don't really have any business here and I think it can be a lot of a big turnoff for the people that are really, poised to be very devoted and hardworking individuals that just like love this stuff with all their heart. Get um, turned off. They, you can get turned off when they're like, well, you, you know, we need to do these experiments where we cut the heads off. And like, that's just how it is. That's how we do science. And like, I wouldn't have done a study like that. You know, if that was my lab, I'd be like, well, you know, Bye. peace. I'm going to go, you know, work at the gym down the road or whatever. Um, so so, you know, when you're on your path, you have, if you, if you're doing it, if you want to follow your passion and study animal, study snakes in the wild or whatever sort of animal or plant that you're interested in, you know, you can have a set of ideals. And, and when you're shopping around for, 
for career paths. You can have that in mind and just kind of like set your own boundaries. Um, you know, you can, you can kind of decide what lines you're willing to cross and which ones you're not. And, you know, when you're talking to, to people at schools that you're good, that you might work with, then you say like, Hey, is there, do you, is this a department where they have a barbecue every year where you have to eat the animal that you study? Because that, that's a, that's a common thing. <laughs> that's a thing that people do. And, you know, like, you know, when you talk about cults, like it's sort of an indoctrination into this, into this, like, you know, thou shalt not be touchy feely. You have to, mm-hmm. you have to be, uh, you know, you, you can't regard their life very highly. Um, it's you, a specimen. Yeah. You take yeah, it in the field. Specimen. and Mm-hmm. You have to sort of deaden that sense in yourself. And so, you know, the, if you really love the animals, then, you know, like you might not make it very far. So, but there are ways, there are people that um, in, in the field that, that are, um, you know, willing to, you know, that, that are, themselves have uh, rules in their lab about, you know, how much harm they're willing to yeah. do. And, and a lot of that being successful is it's not that, I mean, of course, we think our way is the right way because that's why we're doing it this way. But, you know, a lot of it's just finding a good match, like, you know, someone who, you know, if we were in the position of like having a lab, which we're not. um, But, you know, and someone came to work with us that did want to chop the heads off everybody and have that annual barbecue, it's like that would be a poor match and they wouldn't be very successful with us. So a lot of it's like sort of finding, you know, this program that's a good fit and these people that are a good fit um, and other stuff they do. And it's a lot of, you know, I thought that. I did talk to people and ask a lot of questions and did a good job of that. And there were still without getting into specifics, like some not great matches. Um, you just, you can't do that too much and you can't, I feel like now I can't emphasize that enough to younger people that I'm talking to about, you know, how to, how to figure this out and get where you want to go. It's just like, yeah, so many questions and so much talking to people um, because there's a lot of different ways to do this. And, herpetology or biology or studying snakes can take so many different forms. And even within conservation, you know, conservation and genetics versus what we do, which is a lot of education versus like that active management of figuring out how they respond to fire. It's just, you know, they're just wildly different. Um, and it's just, you know, we need people doing maybe not the cutting off heads, but most of the other things, like we need people doing all these different things and it's just sort of figuring out what it is that you're interested in and, and good at and that you're going to get inspired about. And so therefore you'll do a better job of it and finding a place to, to figure all that out. Absolutely. Now we blew past that two hours very quickly. Yeah. I feel one last, one last question. So between ASP or just your careers in general, I mean, what is a goal that you have an impact you want to make on, whether it's the world as a whole or just the people who are interested in snakes. I mean, what's really the goal that you want to have? I, I could give you the vision statement of the organization, but I'm not going to, I'm going to, I'm actually going to be very specific about it. I, I would like the default for when a venomous snake shows up in someone's backyard. I would like the default to be, wow, this is neat. I want to see what he does instead of how do we get rid of them? Like that's, that's the impact that, that I would like to have personally and as our organization, just to change that very simple reaction. And that feels very big and lofty. 
it's so so concise in a sense but yes. also so so, so hard to attain yeah <laughs> bizarre world <laughs> yeah right it's so go I ahead think, yeah I, I think similarly it's just more broadly it's it's um treat these animals with curiosity you know the fear is so undeserved in 99 of the time humans are interacting with snakes that you know you know not, not like you know you're in the pet store or whatever but when you're in the wild people are just consumed with irrationality about it and and so but most of the time like for me to see a snake in the wild it's like oh my god i'm lucky like let's let's milk everything we can out of this experience like stick with it and get photos or or just kind of see what it does come back tomorrow and see if it's still there you know like i think if people could see past their own fear just to to break through to where it's not like i'm i'm not in a uh mortally compromising you know situation here that it's just like that they're so cool they're 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 scared and they're interesting and they're doing their thing and like they're so foreign we have aliens right here on earth and like <laughs> we can try to understand and it's just like i don't know i mean i could spend hours and hours and hours just watching these things in the field and trying to get a sense of what it is they're doing what's you know, what's what's behind them what's what motivates them and um and so just to like get people to, to step you know take a step aside and, and be able to look at things that way would be i think so so life-changing for people to just you know get through that fear and if anyone wants to get in touch with you guys or check out what you're working on uh where can they do so um, yeah, so we have a website. It's at snakes.ngo, like non-governmental organization. And then we're on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram as well. Um, if you search on any of those for advocates for snake preservation, you should be able to find us. And we have some videos on YouTube as well. That's something we need to put more on there. But, um, but yeah, on the big ones, no Snapchat. <laughs> we are on some whole our business isn't on Snapchat either. Yeah. <laughs> but but please, yeah, interact. I mean, it's it's so cool to have to have people get on there and comment and share and, and um Yeah. I love hearing about their stories. You know, we tweet out some picture or video of some cool thing we saw that we thought was like rare or weird or whatever, and someone else, you know, like chimes in with something they saw like yeah i mean that's so cool or shares a picture like that stuff is just amazing i mean it, for no other reason like we're pretty limited to we've been doing this work just in the southwestern u.s and mainly just in arizona so it's so cool to hear about you know all the species of snakes in the rest of the u.s and the rest of the world doing neat stuff too and other reptiles as well absolutely so everyone go check them out wherever Whatever social media there you, you choose. Besides Snapchat. <laughs> Sorry, yes. Snapchat. <laughs> who would, I don't know who would snap us. or. But I don't want them. Snapchat for a business. I'm okay with that. Interesting. that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but if people want to reach out to us, obviously we're on YouTube right now. You can find us at Port City Pythons on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram. We don't have a Twitter. But we're just, it's just yes we do you just don't you um, just don't know about it. Don't use our twitter <laughs> i use it but okay when do you do i don't it? actually say anything Thank i just you. share things from instagram <laughs> i'll be honest okay <laughs> twitter is that's the last one um also it's a tough one 
you can uh, check us out on portcitypythons.com or email us at theportcitypythons at gmail.com. Orient Center for Indigo Conservation Shirts Fundraiser. I would love if you would buy one. Uh, the money goes obviously to the OCIC and it will go towards building basically outdoor facilities for their animals in which they breed and then re-release. So please check that out. Please check out our episode with Michelle. And I think that's pretty much it. Thank you guys all for coming. And thank you, of course, to Melissa and Jeff for hanging out with us. And you guys have a great night. Absolutely. Thanks a lot.